sermon title this morning is Hallmarks of a Healthy Church. This is such an important topic uh, in the life of our church right now. And our speaker this morning is Pastor Randy Madison. Uh, Randy has over 30 years of experience as a pastor. He has recently retired after 20 years as senior pastor of the Evangelical Free Church in Hastings, Nebraska. He has felt led by the Lord to use his ministry experience to work with churches that are in transition as an interim pastor with IPM Ministries. We're thankful to have Pastor Randy Madison with us to share what God has put on his heart this morning. Please join me in welcoming Pastor Randy Madison. Thank you, George. Well, Elizabeth and I are uh, delighted to be with you today, and we appreciate you inviting us to uh, share this uh, Lord's Day with you. Uh, we've been married uh, for almost 40 years, and uh, your former pastor, uh, Brian uh, uh, Green, listened to him several times on your website. I was just very impressed with what a, a tremendous preacher he was, and uh, have one thing in common with him. I'm actually from the Midwest, but uh, I attended uh, seminary at Gordon-Conwell, and so we spent uh, the early uh, married years of our life together there in the Boston area, and uh, I really enjoyed listening to that New England accent as I would listen to him preach, and uh, that was just uh, really great. And I had an opportunity to talk with Brian uh, a week or so ago. And uh, one of my questions to him was, when was the last time did uh, he preach through the book of Ephesians? Because uh, I, wanted, I felt led to, to talk about uh, this passage this morning uh, from the book. And uh, it sounds like he took you through that, but it's been uh, a few years. And so I thought, well, I'm pr- on pretty safe ground uh, to be in this passage today. Would you bow your head with me one more time? Lord, uh, now as we look into your word today, and as we look at um, four marks of spiritual health, and Lord, I think these apply to our lives uh, individually as well as corporately, as individual followers of the Lord Jesus Christ and as a church body. I just would ask, oh God, that there would be something here for each person. Uh, Lord, you know where we're at. You know what our week's been like. You know whether it's been uh, an up week or a down week. You know what we've carried into this sanctuary with us this morning. You know what's on our hearts. You know what's in our heads. And so, Lord, uh, you are sovereign, and this is your word, and the Holy Spirit is here in our midst. The Lord Jesus Christ is here. Our Lord Jesus is here in our midst right now. And I would ask you, O Lord, that you would just minister to each of our hearts in the way that you need to minister to us now this morning as we listen to your word. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, I've been an avid runner for approximately 35 years, and I had to give it up in March of this year because of a bad hip. Uh, It's actually this hip. And uh, it's it's a lot of fun getting older. (laughs) 
But one of the things that uh, happened in my life many, many years ago as I took up running was uh, my family, my extended family, was concerned about my health. And so they paid for me to have a Cadillac physical at Cooper's Clinic in Dallas, Texas. I went to Dallas. I had this physical. I got on this, this treadmill. I had a stress test. It's the first and only treadmill stress test that I've ever had in my life. And then I got all of this information back that told me what kind of condition I was in. And they told me what my cholesterol was. They gave me my good cholesterol, my bad cholesterol, the HDL, the LDL, uh, my blood pressure, all of that stuff. And I found out what kind of condition or health I was in. And it's important to have an annual physical. Sometimes it's painful. Sometimes we really don't want to know what our physical condition is, but it's important. It's important to find that out, as painful as it may be. How many of you have heard the story of Jim Fix? He was an avid runner. He wrote the book called Complete Book of Running many, many years ago, and he died of a massive coronary at the age of 52 while he was running on a lone road. I think it was Route 15 a highway in Vermont, and they found him alongside of the road. Things were not as they seemed to be. He thought he was in good health. He'd just run a 12-mile race about a week or two before, and uh, he just beat his brother or his sisters. I remember the story in tennis. He thought he was in excellent health. He thought he was going to live for a long time, but they found him by the side of the road. And so the moral of the story is Things are not always as they seem to be. And it's important to be aware of the marks of, of, of marks of health, both in the physical realm as well as in the spiritual realm. And so this morning, for about the next 25 minutes or so, I want to talk about four marks of spiritual health. Not physical health, but spiritual health. And we're going to look at this passage uh, that we just read together. Now, Ephesians, if you know anything about the book, is a book about the church. And Paul, when he wrote this book, I think was concerned about the spiritual health of the people that he was writing to. And in the first part of the book of Ephesians, Paul gives us our spiritual privileges in Christ. He gives us all kinds of information. He paints a picture of our calling in Christ. We just sang about that just a moment ago in one of the songs that we were singing. And so he gives us all this this information of what the church is. It's theological. But as we begin chapter 4, Paul shifts gears. He turns a corner, and now he's going to become very practical And he wants to talk to us about how we should live out our calling and what does a healthy church look like if we're serious about following the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, it's interesting to me, just one little footnote before we plunge into this passage. He wrote this from Rome probably in 61 AD, and we know he wrote it in prison as he wrote the book of Colossians. He wrote the book of Philippians and Philemon. But what's interesting to me about the book of Ephesians is that the words in Ephesus are not found in our best manuscripts. And so this letter was maybe a letter that was written to the book of, uh, pardon me, the church at Ephesus, 
but it was more than likely a circular letter. It was a letter intended for lots of people, not just that single church. And that would explain a lot because this is probably uh, one of Paul's most impersonal letters. And yet he spent three years in Ephesus. And yet there are very few personal references. And so this is a circular letter that probably went to Ephesus first. It'd be a little bit like sending an email or a text to somebody like we do today. And it's intended for that primary person that you're sending it to. But then you copy in everybody else. And so lots of churches read this letter. And ironically then, I think what that means is that while this letter is impersonal in some ways, it's, it becomes very personal because this is a letter for the, the First Baptist Church in Westerlo. This is a letter for the, the church that I've just finished pastoring in Hastings, Nebraska. This letter is for every body of believers, every church, for all time. And Paul has some very important things that he wants to share with us in this passage. Now, there are four ingredients or four marks of spiritual health that I think we find here. The first is unity. A healthy church walks in unity. And we're going to talk about that briefly in verses 1 through 6. The second thing we're going to see this morning is that a healthy church treasures diversity. And a healthy church practices ministry, and it pursues maturity as we walk through this passage. Now, look at verses 1 through 6 again. We just read it. And I want you to notice that unity is vital to the spiritual health of any church. It's one of the final things that Jesus prayed for us in John chapter 17. John, Jesus prayed for his, the original 12, those first disciples, that they would be one even as the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ are one. And then he goes on and, and prays. If you look at verses 20 through 23 in John 17, he prays not only for the original 12, but he prayed for you. He prayed for this church, all of those that would come after And it's a prayer for oneness, a prayer for unity. And Paul got that because he talks about the importance of unity here in this passage of Scripture this morning. How many of you have heard of Francis Schaeffer, the great Christian apologist from many years ago? He made this statement about unity. He said, love and the unity that it attests to is the mark. He didn't say it was a mark. He said, it's the mark Christ gave Christians to wear before the world. Only with this mark may the world know that Christians are indeed Christians and that Jesus was sent by the Father. Loving one another, walking together in unity is foundational to spiritual health in any church. And Paul talks about that in this passage. Now, there are three things I want you to notice here in verses 1 through 6. The first thing I want you to notice is where unity flows from, the spring of unity. And then I want you to notice the source of unity and the secret of unity in these, in these six verses. What is the fountain of unity? Where does unity flow from? Well, unity begins in your heart. True unity 
with your brother and sister begins in your heart. You know, we can fake it. And I've faked it a lot of times in my life. How many times do you walk into church, you put on a smile, and you pretend like you love somebody? But you're really thinking something differently in your heart. True unity begins with the attitude of your heart. Look at verses 1 and 2 again, and notice what Paul says. I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love. There are four attitudes of heart given to us there in verse 2. Those are the building blocks of unity. Now, I told you earlier that Elizabeth and I have been married for about 40 years, and we're learning once again how to love each other better right now at year 40 in our lives, okay? Our children are gone from the house. We've got eight grandchildren, and uh, I've, just res- I've just retired from this church that I've been pastoring, and so I've been, ar- I've been around the house a lot more. And I'm used to getting up in the morning and going to work. And so I get up in the morning, and Elizabeth comes down, and when I get up in the morning, I'm a reflector. I like my quiet time. I like to begin the day thinking about what the day's going to be like. I'm a planner. Elizabeth is a connector. Now, guess where we're headed with that? I like to reflect. She likes to connect, okay? I can't hear myself think. And so we've had to work through some things, and I'm learning how to love her better, and I'm learning some things about her. Now, we were married 40 years ago, and I've got the marriage license to prove it. But I I can tell you there have been some days recently where I haven't been very gentle, and I haven't been as patient as I should have been with my wife, and I haven't been as forbearing. Look at verse 2 again. Forbearing one another in love. I haven't been as forbearing with her as I should have. You know what that word patience means? It's an interesting Greek word. It's a compound word. Makros thumos. It means to spread out your anger, to spread out your anger. Instead of reacting and becoming impatient, it means to take a deep breath and spread it out. Be patient, be gentle, be humble, be forbearing with one another in love. Unity begins with the attitude of the heart. And then notice the, 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 the source of unity. We don't manufacture unity. We don't create unity. We simply maintain the unity that God gives us, and unity begins with and comes from the Holy Spirit, and we maintain it, we cultivate it with these attitudes of heart that, that Paul's describing here in verse 2. But look at verse 3. He says here in verse 3 that we're to be eager to maintain the unity by the way we live. And and then he says the unity of the Spirit. Now, in the Greek language, that's probably a genitive of source, which means that we should translate this phrase, the unity that comes from the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit that gives us the ability to be unified And we tap into that and we maintain it with our our attitudes of heart that I was just describing. 
And then notice the secret of unity. Look at verses four through six. Our hope, the Lord Jesus Christ. We were just singing about him this morning, weren't we? Did you mean what you sang this morning? Or were those just words of a chorus that you were mouthing? Jesus Christ ultimately is the secret to unity. The Holy Spirit is the source of unity. And we cultivate that unity with our attitudes of heart by being gentle, humble, patient with one another. But he's the secret of unity. We have to keep our eyes on him. He's our Lord. He's our Savior. He died for us. He's the one that reconciled us to God the Father. Look at verses 4 through 6 again. He is our hope. We have one hope, and that hope is in the Lord Jesus Christ. I read a very interesting statement many years ago. And this gentleman, E. Stanley Jones, a very famous, I think he was a Baptist preacher, said that you talk about what you believe and you will have disunity. But talk about who you believe in and you have unity. Because you see, we all share a common statement of faith. We, uh, that, that statement of faith binds us together. But if you talk long enough, you're always going to find some things that you differ on. If you talk about what you believe in, but if you talk about who you believe in, if you keep your focus on the Lord Jesus Christ, he's the foundation. He's the source of unity. And so that's the first mark of a healthy church, walking together in unity. Now, notice in verses 7 through 12, Paul goes on and he talks about diversity. Immediately after talking about oneness and love and walking together in unity, he goes on to describe five gifts that God has given the church, spiritual gifts. And these are leadership gifts. This is an exhaustive list that he gives us here in verse 7. And so I want you to understand something very important this morning. If you're going to walk in unity with your brother and sister, you need to understand that that means you're not going to walk together in uniformity. Uniformity and unity are not the same thing. In fact, you can't have unity unless you have differences. And Paul gives us five different ministries that he's given the church prophets and apostles and prophet, pastors and teachers. He gives this list of evangelists. I'm not an evangelist. I'm a pastor teacher. You can't have unity without diversity. It's very different than uniformity. Think about a, 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 your choir that I think sings once a month. Is that right? Don't you have a choir that sings once a month, most of the year, or twice a month? Or think about a quartet, members of a quartet, And how beautiful that is when they sing together in harmony. You have an ensemble up here, and you've got altos, and you've got sopranos, and you've got a bass, and you've got tenors. You can't have harmony unless you have different voices, unless you have a bass and a tenor, unless you have a soprano and an alto. Unity isn't uniformity. You've got to have differences in diversity. And so a healthy church treasures that. It recognizes that there are different members of the body of Christ. And he's gifted all of us differently. Different backgrounds, different spiritual gifts, different talents. And that's what makes the body of Christ so rich. 
all of the differences and sometimes even differences of preferences in the songs that we sing. But that's what makes us beautiful. And so you've got to have diversity, and a healthy church treasures that. Now, in verse 8, it's interesting. Paul actually quotes from a, a verse in the Old Testament, Psalm 68, verse 18. And if you turn back to the Old Testament and you look at that verse that Paul quotes here in verse 8 of chapter 4 in the book of Ephesians, you'll notice that it says that Jesus received gifts from men. He didn't give gifts to men. And yet, in some of the Syriac and and the earlier versions, translations in the New Testament, it actually has this word, he gives gifts to men. And so, he's talking about the ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ, and he's distributed gifts to all of the people in his church as a result of his grace. Look at that word grace at the beginning of verse 7. By grace was given to each one of us, according to the measure of Christ, a gift. Did you know that you have a spiritual gift this morning? Now, John, one of your gifts is obviously music. You're, you're, you're obviously very talented. You're gifted, and you're able to lead us in worship. Thankfully, Derek held to his promise this morning. He said he wouldn't turn my mic on until I got up here, so you didn't have to listen to me sing, okay? I'm not John. We're all different But everybody in here today has at least one spiritual gift. We've got a couple of passages coming up on the screen for you right now. Romans chapter 12, and then immediately after that, we don't have time to read them this morning, but 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10. And if you, you go home today and you open your Bible and you read those passages, those are some other passages about spiritual gifts... It's very clear, and notice the similarity in language. Gifts are a result of God's grace. They're not something that we earn or manufacture. They're given to us. God has given everybody at least one spiritual gift. And I love Peter Wagner's definition of a spiritual gift. I think we've got that on the screen for you this morning as well. I'm going to have to step over here to read it because I don't have it in my notes. Can we get to that place? He says that, and I'm going to have to come down here to read that thing. But I want to make a point here. A spiritual gift is an exceptional ability given by Christ. Everyone in here, every person seated here this morning is exceptional. God doesn't make any junk. Everybody in here is exceptional, and you've been given an exceptional ability by Christ through the Holy Spirit been given to each believer who's thus equipped to serve others in special ways for Christ and his kingdom. That's a spiritual gift. And if you don't know your gift or your gifts, I'm sure that Pastor Brian had some kind of a spiritual gifts test or instrument. One of the things that we'll do if I, if I end up here as your interim pastor, as you look forward to your next permanent pastor, One of the things we'll do is form a transitional team, and I'm going to talk more about that tonight. And one of the things that we're going to do in that transitional team, a leadership team, that'll help take you through this transition as we we grow together and look to the future God has for you, one of the things we'll do is we'll take a spiritual gift assessment because God wants you to know your gift. 
Now, in this passage of Scripture, he limits the list to just leadership gifts. Now, notice why the leadership gifts are given to the church. Look at verse 12. And this is the third ingredient now of a healthy church. The leadership gifts and the gift of pastor, teacher, and this list that we don't have time this morning to go into all of these, but these gifts are given to the body of Christ. Notice, for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry. Did you know that pastors are just servants? I serve the church that I just left for 20 years. And what a privilege it was to serve them. What an honor it was to be called to Hastings, Nebraska, and just to be there to serve those people as a pastor for the past 20 years. But pastors are nothing more than servants of the servant, the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ is the head of the church. And pastors are just servants of the servant called to serve God's people and to equip God's people so that you, you can do the work of the ministry. See, for some reason, we've got it all turned around and upside down today. And, you know, we hire pastors and we, we, we get this hired gun in, into, in, into some church and we expect them to do all the ministry. But the reality is pastors are given to the church now, don't, mis- don't overinterpret this. Don't misinterpret this. Pastors are a model ministry. But pastors are given to the church to equip God's people so that they will do the work of the ministry. The work of the ministry belongs to you. And Jesus Christ is glorified. And the church is edified. And the world is evangelized when God's people are involved in ministry together. Several years ago, I ran across a very interesting little poem. Perhaps you've heard it. It's called Only by Working Together. All have a share in the beauty. All have a part in the plan. What does it matter what duty falls to the lot of man? Someone's blended the plaster. Someone's carried the stone. Neither the man nor the master has ever built it alone. Whether making a roof for the weather and you're repairing your roof right now or building a house for the king, only by working together have men ever accomplished a thing. And so God wants all of his people involved in ministry. And this word equipping is an interesting word. Turn back to Matthew chapter 4, verse 19 for just a minute. If you got your Bible or if you get your Scripture on your pad this morning, however you get it, scroll back or turn back to Matthew chapter 4, verse 13, or pardon me, 19, not 13. And here we've got this description of Jesus calling the first disciples. And here in Matthew 4, 19, we read these words. 
I'm going to go back to 18. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. Now look at Mark chapter 1, verse 19. Turn over to the book of Mark chapter 1, verse 19. And notice that as Jesus was calling these early disciples, we read, and going a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat, mending their nets. Underline that phrase, mending their nets. That word mending is this word equipping here in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 12. Now, I know we've got some fishermen here in the sanctuary this morning. I know of at least one, Vern. He loves to fish for walleye. I don't know if you fish for walleye with nets, but that's how they did it back in the first century A.D. And sometimes those nets would break. And so you had to stitch them back together. You had to mend them. That's this word equipping. And you know, we're all broken people. We live broken lives, and sometimes we need mending. This word equipping also was a a medical term, and it was used to repair a broken ankle or a broken arm, like you put it in a cast. It means to put something back into working order so that it can accomplish the purpose for which it was made. Your arm was meant to lift things. A net was meant to catch fish. And so sometimes you have to mend it or equip it so that it it accomplishes the purpose for which God made it. Pastors are given to equip God's people for the work of the ministry. I don't know if any of you are old enough. Uh, Some of you would be old enough to remember a football coach by the name of Bud Wilkinson. Anybody ever heard of Bud Wilkinson? He coached the Oklahoma Sooners back in the 1940s and the 1950s. And he went on to become, during John F. Kennedy's presidential tenure, he went on to become the, the, the representative or the the, the, the president's representative on the, the Council for Physical Fitness, and he was helping our nation become more fit. Somebody walked up to him one, on one occasion, and he asked, they asked him the question. They said, uh, Coach Wilkinson, do you think that college football is contributing to the overall physical fitness of people here in America? And Bud Wilkinson thought about that for a moment, and he thought about the 80,000 people sitting in the stands and the 22 players on the field that were exhausting themselves, and he said, well, no, I don't think it's doing much of anything because when I think of football, I think of 22 players on the field who are desperately in need of rest and 80,000 people in the stands who desperately need exercise. And that's a picture of the body of Christ. We've got a lot of people sitting in the grandstands. A lot of people who are in the, on the bench today that need to be in the ball game. A healthy church practices ministry and understands that the ministry belongs to the people of God. And we're just servants of servants. Player coaches, ministering as well, but called on to equip and serve. Now the fourth and final mark of health. Look at verses 13 through 16. A healthy church pursues maturity. That's the fourth and final indicator of spiritual health in these 16 verses 
that Paul gives us this morning. He says in verses, the end of verse 12 and then the beginning of verse 13, that this equipping process, so the body of Christ will practice ministry that glorifies God. This process goes on so that the body of Christ may be built up, look at verse 12, until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, mature men and women, attaining to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And notice what the the ultimate measurement of maturity is, the stature of Christ. Now, let me ask you, are you there yet? I'm not there. I don't measure up yet. I'm still on the journey. But that's the journey that God has us all on. We're traveling the journey from from the time that we come to Christ till we see him face to face of him shaping us and molding us and making us into his image, the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, maturity. He wants us to become like Jesus, a church that looks like Jesus, that lives like Jesus, that loves like Jesus, that impacts this community and this world, this state, for the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus said that a student isn't above his teacher, but everyone who's fully trained will be like his teacher. You know, God is far more interested in our maturity than our success. We, we put so much emphasis today in America on success, on how big our church is, or how fantastic and how excellent our, our music is, or whatever, whatever it is that we want to use as a measuring stick. But you know, God isn't interested in half the things that we think are important to him. What God is interested in is how much like Jesus are you becoming your maturity in Christ. Now, here's a great Bible study question because we don't have time to finish all of this today. Go home and read these last four verses, verses 13 through 16, and ask yourself the question, what are the five measurements or measuring sticks of maturity that Paul gives us here in verses 13 through 16. There are five things. One of them is unity. One is just stability, not being like a kid, tossed back and forth and to and fro. But what are the five measurements or indicators that we're becoming more mature according to verses 13 through 16? That's a great Bible study question. And God has a lot of tools in his toolkit to help us become more mature, both as a church and as individuals that are seeking to follow the Lord Jesus. Let me end with this this thought this morning. It's another poem, and I really don't use all that much poetry. If uh, we end up coming here and I'm your interim, you may never ever hear another poem from me, but today is Poem Sunday, okay? But I think this is a great thought, another old poem. I think that I shall never see a church that's all it, it, all it ought to be, a church whose members never stray beyond the straight and narrow way, a church that has no empty pews, whose pastor never has the blues, a church whose deacons always deke and none is proud and all are meek, 
where gossips never peddle lies or make complaints or criticize, where all are always sweet and kind and all to others false or blind. Such perfect churches there may be, but none of them are known to me. And I've pastored three churches now in my pastoral career, and I haven't pastored a perfect church yet, and I'm far from being a perfect pastor. I'm just on, on the road like you are. But still we'll work and pray and plan to make our own the best we can. You know, there are no perfect churches this side of heaven. There are none. None. But God does want us to be a healthy church. And this morning, Paul's given us four hallmarks, measuring sticks of health. A healthy church walks together in unity. It values. It treasures diversity. It practices ministry. And it pursues the right goal, the right aim, maturity, Christ-likeness. Let's bow together in prayer. Lord, may it be so here at the First Baptist Church in Westerlo. Lord, I just pray right now that your Holy Spirit, who is present here this morning, would just fill each individual heart and fill this church. They're grieving the loss of their pastor, a pastor who they love, who served them faithfully for six years. This is a hard time. They're on the threshold of a transition. But Lord, be with them. May they grow through it. May they thrive in this season because you haven't abandoned them. And Lord, I pray that they would be a healthy church that brings glory to our Lord Jesus Christ in whose name we pray this morning. Amen.